0: Good morning. Let's read the word together. Uh, The scripture this morning is coming from Ecclesiastes 8, verses 1 to 17. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. Who is like the wise, and who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wise wisdom makes his face shine. Thank you for standing with me. (laughs) And the hardness of his face is changed. I say, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. Be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause, for he does whatever he pleases. For the word of the king is supreme, and who may say to him, what are you doing? Whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing, and the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. For there is a time and a way for everything, although man's trouble lies heavy on him. For he does not know what is to be, for who can tell him how it will be? No man has power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. There is no discharge from war, nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. All this I observed while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun, when man had power over man to his hurt. Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also is vanity. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God, because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked, neither will he prolong his days like a shadow because he does not fear before God. There is a vanity that takes place on earth, that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this also is vanity, and I commend joy, for man has no good thing under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful, for this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun." When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes see sleep. Then I saw all the work of God, that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. This is God's word. And will you now sing with me? Number 73, God moves in a mysterious way.
1: Amen. We'll go ahead and find your way to the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, If you're just joining us or if uh, you're unfamiliar with that book, you can find it in the Old Testament. Um, It is... After Psalms and Proverbs, if you hit Isaiah, you've gone a little bit too far. Just back up a couple books and you'll be right there. And we've been in Ecclesiastes for a few months now. And I think one of the best summaries of the books so far that I can give you is to relate a story that happened to me this week at the chapel service at Veritas Christian Academy where I help out with chapel. Uh, as I stood up to teach the Word of God Thursday morning to these young boys and girls in what's the youth chapel at the church that uh, the school rents, somehow the smoke machine behind me went off and these lights were going and the room was just filled with smoke. So I'm trying to teach, you know, minister God's Word to these you know, young minds and there's this constant distraction and everyone's reaching at the smoke and giggling and so on. According to my son, it was epic. So, not, not the sermon, but the smoke was epic. That pretty much summarizes Ecclesiastes. Life is vapor. It is smoke. It is vanity. We spend our days chasing after all this stuff, all this money, all of our relationships and work and so on, looking for some significance or gain, and it's all just a puff of smoke that distracts us from what's really important and that doesn't, you know last for very long and doesn't ultimately amount to much. You can't even take hold of it. That's life in a fallen world, life under the sun, as the preacher puts it, life that does not work according to God's design, because of human sin and rebellion that has messed the whole thing up. And as we've gone through this book, it's forced us to deal with all sorts of different. Uh, questions in life, all sorts of different things that we encounter, uh, to deal with the vapor or vanity of money, of work, of our knowledge, of our relationships, even our religious activity. And the sphere of life uh, that it's going to force us to deal with this morning is one that we often find frustrating and flawed, particularly as we think about you know an important election coming up, and that's the realm of government. He's going to force us to think about politics, about civic life. That's the subject of his reflections in chapter 8, where we're going to see that since God is the only one who is wise enough to sort it all out, what we need is his wisdom for navigating our way through a world uh, that doesn't work the way it's supposed to. We need God's wisdom for all of life, but especially for things like government. So let's pray together as we look at this chapter. Lord, we do ask that you would give us wisdom according to your word by the strength of your spirit as we think about what it means to be your people living in a world that is not our ultimate home. So give us grace this morning as we look into your word, change our hearts, and may we make much of you. In your name, amen. Uh, yesterday, uh, my family and I spent the afternoon at Honeypot Farms in Stowe uh, picking apples, which was a lot of fun. There's now much apple crisp in the fridge at home, which is a good thing. Uh, but if you've been to Honeypot recently, you've probably seen their new giant hedge maze. Has anybody seen that or experienced that? A few hands maybe, Which you know what I'm talking about. It's one of those hedge mazes where you you... You can't see where to go when you're inside. The hedges are too tall to see over top. So you just kind of have to find your way through the thing. Um, But in the middle of that maze, there's a tower. And if you can find your way to the tower, you can get up and you can look out over top of the maze and you can see where it goes. You can see where the dead ends are or, or how to find your way out. Uh, From up above, you can take the whole thing in, and that gives you an entirely new perspective than when you're down inside uh, being blocked. Well, one of the challenging realities that that we face as Christians, those who know Christ and seek to follow him, is trying to find our way through a flawed political system and through the fractured societies that we live in, and sometimes... It feels a lot like wandering through one of those hedge mazes where you can't see above. You know, you can't quite make it to the tower. All you can do is just try and navigate from down inside. That's frustrating and it's confusing at times. But that's part of life under the sun. Human government is a reality of life on earth. Now, of course, some governments function better than others, but we all interact with them. And until the Lord Jesus returns and completes his new creation, God's people will continue to live lives of dual citizenship. So our our chief allegiance and primary citizenship for those who know Jesus is in heaven. We are citizens of heaven. But as long as we live out our days as sojourners on this earth in whatever nation or context we're in, Uh, we're also citizens of of this world. And in the meantime, we're called to be good citizens, contributing citizens to whatever uh, realm we live in. If you think of God's instruction to Israel uh, when they were sent off to Babylon to be in exile in this foreign pagan nation, what God says to them in Jeremiah 29, but seek the welfare of the city, where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. So part of being faithful citizens of heaven is being fruitful citizens on earth. But when governments and civic authorities that we work with are flawed, and when people are sinners, just like us, uh, that's hard to know what to do sometimes and how to find our way through the maze. Ecclesiastes 8 paints a rather dismal picture of the world we live in and how leaders and societies tend to work uh, as the preacher, who's probably the ancient King Solomon, as he puts it in verse 9. Look at verse 9 with me. He says, all this I observed while applying my heart to all that's done under the sun when man had power over man. To his hurt. Think about that last line. When man had power over man to his hurt. That is the world we live in. Now, some translations will say to his own hurt, but I don't think that's the idea here. We live in a world where people use power to hurt other people. That's one of the realities of life under the sun. And sadly, governments, both ancient and modern, who ought to bring order and justice to societies, are often some of the worst perpetrators of this problem. Uh, If we follow some of the ways that the preacher describes the world we live in with respect to politics and government, we see first a world where kings and national leaders often see themselves as supreme and above correction. So look with me at verses 3 and 4. Be hasty not to go from the king's presence... Do not take your stand in an evil cause, for he does whatever he pleases. For the word of the king is supreme, and who may say to him, What are you doing? There was once a Caesar, uh, the emperor of Rome, who used to sign his name to documents as God. That's how he would sign his name. Now, politicians are a little more subtle today. uh, But when you have power... It's easy to want to play God. To coerce the system, even maybe to abuse the system and silence your opponents in order to get what you want. That's one of the dynamics of life in this world. But on the other hand, the world we live in, uh, you know, whatever authority kings or prime ministers or presidents have is sometimes under threat of insurrection. So the president might, or the king might abuse it, but, you know, others might abuse their system and try and, and overthrow the thing. And we, we see that in the instruction in the middle of verse 3, where the, the person being addressed here is told, do not take your stand in an evil cause, or do not join in an evil matter, most likely an evil cause against the king, like revolution or rebellion. And if you look at this world, we see governments come and go in this world. In the past two years alone, we've seen the creation of a new nation, southern Sudan. And in recent months, we've seen the overturn of several governments and political regimes, like Tunisia, Greece, Egypt, Libya. Now, not all of those are the result of revolution, but you get the picture of how unstable the political landscape is that we live in. Moreover... We live in a world where wickedness is celebrated, a world of what we might call moral chaos. Uh, Take a look at verse 10 with me. Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also is vanity. Now, this verse is a little difficult to understand, and some of your translations will, will say it a little bit different. Some will say that the wicked were praised in the city. Others will say that they were forgotten. But either way, what we see here in this verse is that the wicked are being honored either temporarily in a burial or immortalized in a civic celebration afterwards. Wickedness is being celebrated. You know, our tendency in society, or our society, has a tendency to honor sin and to condemn righteousness. And David Wells, um, professor up at Gordon-Conwell, has said this beautifully, and I've quoted it before. They make sin look normal and righteousness seem strange. That's what worldliness does in, in the world we live in. We also live in a world of weak and flawed justice systems. keeps getting worse as we keep looking at this chapter. You know, verse 11 tells us, because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, you know, weak justice, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. That's just common sense. If the penalty isn't really going to happen, and you see this sometimes, you know, with your own children, when you throw out one of these idle threats, like I'm going to take away TV for the rest of your life, or something that you know, they know, that you're not really going to enforce... It doesn't do much to deter the activity, does it? Um, you know, we live in a world of weak systems that, that, don't, uh, that don't really treat evil for the evil that it is. Finally, we live in a world where those who turn their backs on God sometimes prosper, while those who spend their life seeking God sometimes spend their days in suffering. And that's what the preacher tells us in verse 14. There is a vanity that takes place on the earth. That there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. And there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this also is vanity. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. Now, we know from earlier in the book and from elsewhere in scripture that there's no one who by themselves is perfectly righteous. But if we just step back and think about it in our own world, even those who are righteous in Christ, who have found their their forgiveness and their, their justification by faith in him, they've trusted in what he's done for them in his life, death, and resurrection, we still see righteous people by that category facing dreadful hardships, while those who scorn Christ and take advantage of others seem to, quote, live it up, have all the fun. And so on. That's not how the world is supposed to work. So we live in a world that's messed up when it comes to everything, but even politics, even government. And all of these realities make civic life less than simple. So what do we do? How do we conduct ourselves, our, live our lives in a, in a world where people have power over other people to their hurt? In a world where governments are flawed and people like us are sinners. Well, the temptation is to respond in one of several ways. Some of us want to take that power from the people who are abusing it and then use it to make things right. We want revolution. You know, we, you know, if the problem is that government's corrupt and ungodly, then we need to take back the government. You know, uh, we're like Boromir in Tolkien's The Fellowship of the Ring, who tries to seize the ring of power, thinking that he would wield its power for good. But nobody wields the one ring. It wields you. And so it is with power in the hands of sinners. This is what Lord Acton famously said, power tends to corrupt, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. So it is when we seize the ring, so to speak, power for our own selves and our own cause. What often happens is that the oppressed become the oppressors and the solution is sometimes worse than the problem. Now, some of us choose to work within the system uh, for change. But after a while, we find that instead of changing the system, the system has actually changed us. You know, this is a familiar pattern among Christian activism in North America. We we rightly get involved, but then it's, we we run into this problem where we combine or confuse the gospel of Jesus and the American dream, or the gospel of Jesus and this or that political party. You know, in our effort to use political means for the sake of God's kingdom, we often become unable to distinguish between the party-line platform and the priorities of Christ. It's really easy to do. And then for some of us, the response uh, is simply to check out, to disengage from political life, because what difference does it make anyway? I have to confess, this is the temptation I deal with. Um, You'll find me to be a relatively optimistic person, unless we're talking about politics. Then I pretty much get, you know, pessimistic and, and, and so on. Part of that, to be honest, is that I don't understand politics very well. I spent a summer working as an administrative aide for a senator in the state, uh, capital Nebraska. I learned how to make photocopies and answer the phone. I didn't learn anything about the process. I, I don't get it very well. And so my temptation is just to kind of ignore it. But the way forward, In this question is neither to hijack the government nor to capitulate to it, nor to ignore it. So how then do we respond? How do we find our way through the maze in such a way as to be faithful to God and yet to engage fruitfully with whatever cities, states, nations, and the whole world that we live in and our citizens? What is needed, according to the preacher... Is wisdom. Wisdom. This is how he starts the whole chapter back in verse one. Who is like the wise? And who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine, and the hardness of his face is changed. Think of the story of Daniel, you know, when he's working in the king's court. And literally, you know, they could tell the physical presence of look different with this man than from the others. You know, you know, there's a difference in the look of a person who feels trapped in the maze, disoriented, scared, and anxious, can't find their way out. There's a difference in the look on that face than the face of someone who has begun to kind of put a few things together and is, is now figuring out how to move forward and find their way out. There's a light that shines in that, that wisdom gives us. We we feel like we kind of at least know what the next step is, and that's encouraging. We need wisdom for navigating this maze. And by wisdom, we're talking about much more than knowledge. It's not just having the right information, you know, knowing you know, what's going on in, in, in different subjects and so on. Wisdom is knowing how to apply that information to the way we live. So... If you think of knowledge as knowing where the target is on an archery range, wisdom is having the skill to pick up the bow and actually hit the target with the arrow. So wisdom is taking knowledge and applying it to how we live life, living life in a way that brings honor to God. And the way, where we get that knowledge and that wisdom, of course, is in God's word and looking at how God has ordered this world. Wisdom is living according to God's perspective, and that's what we need for navigating this life. But I think if you were to poll any one of us, we would find that wisdom is also limited. It doesn't give us all the answers we want, Uh, and we've seen that several times in this book uh, and right here in our own chapter. Just as this chapter begins by praising the wise and how beneficial it is, look at how the chapter ends Verse 16, when I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that's done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes sleep, then I saw all the work of God that man cannot find out the work that's done under the sun. However much he may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. Really, what he's saying here is that though God has made himself known to us and his perspective known to us in Scripture and even more generally in how he's ordered creation, God's the only one who's able to ascend the tower and look down over the maze. We're stuck inside. And sometimes his wisdom is just enough to know whether the next turn is left or right. But it is enough to know how to put one foot in front of the other. Even if we can't see the whole thing, God in his wisdom, in revealing himself, his priorities, his values according to the scriptures shaped by the gospel is enough at least to put one foot in front of the other if we're following him, if we're listening to him. So despite wisdom's limitation, even though we can't sort it all out, the preacher does give us three instructions in this passage on how to navigate this maze according to the perspective of God. Uh, and that's what I want to spend the rest of our time looking at. Three instructions uh, in applying wisdom to this political maze we live in. And the first instruction is to respect authority. Respect authority. Look with me at verse 2. I say, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. Or possibly because of your oath to God. Now, the setting here in this kind of instruction, uh, it's it's giving an instruction to someone who's working in the king's court. So in the government, interacting with the king, you might think of the presidential cabinet, for instance. And that person is told to obey the king, to respect his authority. And what's interesting is that the reason he's told to obey the king is somehow rooted in God whether it's because God made an oath to the king or this person swore allegiance to the king before God, there's a recognition that God is involved in this picture and that he is the one who's placed the king in authority, the same king who might perhaps abuse his power. Now, this idea of the importance of respecting authority uh, lines up very closely with what we see in the New Testament. Think of 1 Peter 2, verse 13. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor or king as supreme, or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. Or think of Paul in Romans 13. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there's no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. Now, even Jesus recognized the authority of the Roman government in his days, saying in Luke 20, verse 25, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. So human authority... And structures are a reality of life under the sun. And though it's not perfect, God's still the one who's put it into place and is still using it in some way. And the wise person, according to Solomon, will respect that. Ecclesiastes 8.3 continues, kind of showing us what does it look like to respect it. He says, be not hasty to go from the king's presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause, for he does whatever he pleases. In other words, the wise cabinet member uh, who hopes to influence the president will observe protocol and avoid insurrection. That's kind of the point there. He or she will even find safety in respecting that authority, as we see in verse 5. Whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing or will be protected from harm. That's actually what government's supposed to do. Protect those who do what is right. But this does not mean we will never face dilemmas. We will never wrestle with what to do when our leaders or our governments do something wrong. It doesn't mean that we will always agree or never stand up in opposition. But continuing in verse 5, "...the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. For there is a time and a way for everything." Although man's trouble lies heavy on him, it's not easy. For he does not know what is to be, for who can tell him how it will be? Because governments are flawed, we will find ourselves facing all kinds of challenges, whether we're serving in the cabinet, the city council, or just showing up in the voting booth. But the wise person will begin to make his way forward by respecting authority. That's the first instruction he gives us. Now, that's pretty easy to see or to say in in the land of the free, in the home of the brave, where our government allows for things like freedom of speech or encourages us to be involved and to vote and so on and so forth. Um, but what about Christians living under dictators? What happens then? What about Christians living in oppressive Muslim cultures where to convert to Christ is to receive a death sentence? Well, this is where we need to look at the preacher's second instruction, and that is to fear God. Fear God. Whenever we hear an instruction to obey the king and respect authority, many of us immediately ask the question, okay, so what happens when the government's wrong? Uh, you know, is there any limit to our obedience to kings or presidents or whoever, teachers or generals, you know? What about when they go so far as to command us to disobey God? What then? Well, We often forget that for much of the church's history, and in different places around the world even today, the governing authorities have not always been that friendly to Christians, particularly in the first few centuries of the church. My son Joshua is reading a book called Peril and Peace right now. It's part of a church history series for kids. And the other night, he came downstairs and was telling me what he learned about Polycarp, who was one of the church fathers, who chose to be burned alive in the Roman Colosseum rather than denounce Christ. You know, and such was the case for many of the early leaders of the church and martyrs throughout the centuries. We're called to respect the authorities, But if we ever find ourselves in a place where we have to choose between obeying God and obeying them, we need to remember that God is the one we must ultimately fear. As Peter said to the rulers in Jerusalem who told him, you can't preach this gospel anymore. Peter says in Acts 5, we must obey God rather than men. Or as the preacher tells us in verses 12 and 13, right in our passage, Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked, neither will he prolong his days like a shadow because he does not fear before God. To fear God is simply to recognize that he is God and that we are not and then to treat him accordingly, to give him the respect and the reverence that he alone deserves. Only God is wise enough to accomplish his purposes and sort out this whole mess we live in. Now, as we saw earlier when we looked at verses 16 and 17, his plan is beyond us. We cannot figure it out, but we can be confident that he knows what he's doing. Only God is wise enough. Moreover, only God is powerful enough to accomplish his purposes. Now, if we look at verse 8 in our chapter, you know, whatever power that humans may have over one another to their hurt, there is a time and a place when that power stops short, and that is in the, pa- the battle against death. Verse 8 reads, No man has power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. There is no discharge from that battle, nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. So all human plans will someday in some way come to naught. But God is eternal. God is immortal and sovereign. And he has proved that power through the resurrection of Jesus. So only God is supremely wise. Only God is supremely powerful. But we also fear God because only God alone is able to establish justice in the end. Now, justice, doing what is right, making right what is wrong, that's what governments are supposed to do. They're supposed to establish and keep justice. Yet it's the very thing that's so often abused in our world. God will keep justice. God will establish justice. He will bring every evil deed to account. Those that we've committed and those that have been committed against us. In the end... All humans who've ever walked on this earth will stand before his judgment seat and give an account. And left to themselves, they will all be found wanting. We already stand condemned because of our rebellion against his throne, our disobedience to God. And so we have one of two choices when it comes to receiving justice. We can either face the punishment in hell or we can look to Jesus who took that punishment on himself. God's eternal son took God's holy anger against our sin on himself in our place on the cross to deal decisively with it that it might be canceled and our slate wiped clean, the slate broken and shattered, that we might be forgiven And have new life. Unlike us. Jesus never sinned against his father. He never tried an insurrection. He alone therefore. Was able to offer himself. As a perfect substitute in our place. So that God. Could deal justly with our sin. And mercifully. With sinners like us. To give us forgiveness. To give us new life. And. To do that for those who believe, for those who will stop trying to make it up to God on their own and instead look to Jesus in faith, to trust in him, that his work was enough. It's through faith in Christ that we're not only cleared of our guilt, but also equipped for God's service. We're equipped to do what he created us to do, to be servants who worship Him above everything else, Him alone. We give Christ our undivided allegiance. And so in the power of His Spirit, He sends us out as His servants to advance His kingdom. And the way we do this is not by seizing control of earthly power or using the weapons of this world, but by proclaiming the gospel of Jesus And following his pattern of self-giving love. That's how God's kingdom advances. By laying down what power we might have and willingly dying for others. Whatever we do in this world, we do as ambassadors of heaven and representatives of Christ. That's our calling. The wise person will respect authority. Will fear God. And if we fear God, if we trust him and recognize that he's in control, we're also free to follow the preacher's third instruction. And it's one we've heard several times in this book. And that is to enjoy life. To enjoy life. Verse 15. And I commend joy. For man has no good thing under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful. For this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. Now, I have to confess, that feels a little odd in this chapter. You know, we're talking about, you know, all of the the perils of this world and how messed up it is. Uh, You know, we live in wartime. And Satan and his forces are pressing against God's people. Who has time to sit back and enjoy a meal? You know, this is war. We're losing so many cultural battles and political battles and so on. There's too much at stake. We may even begin to believe that the Christian faith itself rests on our very shoulders. But Scottish theologian P.T. Forsyth reminds us on what our faith truly rests. He writes, Our faith did not arise from the order of the world The world's convulsions, therefore, need not destroy it. Rather, it arose from the sharpest crisis, the greatest war, the deadliest death, and the deepest grave the world ever knew in Christ's cross. We do live in wartime, but the war has already been decided. Our job is to announce Jesus' victory and then to live in the hope and joy of that victory while we wait for his return. And that means respecting authority as fruitful citizens. It means fearing God as devoted worshipers, but it also means enjoying life. Enjoying the good things that God gives us with a thankful heart and an open hand recognizing that at some point his plan may be to remove some of those things. But even then, Jesus is enough. That is a joy that is a welcome companion in dark days, the simple joy of enjoying what God has given us. And it's a joy that ultimately points us to our greatest joy in Christ. I think that you know, as long as human governments are made up of sinners leading sinners, we're going to find ourselves confused at times and frustrated, even outraged and appalled. But there's a reason that Jesus is called King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Think of the, how politically charged those titles are. we got lots of kings on this earth. There's only one King of Kings. Lots of lords, masters, and bosses. There's only one Lord of Lords. There's a reason he's called that because he is the true Lord of this earth and those who know him not only have victory but have a job to do in representing him. So may God grant us the wisdom to do that faithfully as ambassadors of Christ. Let's pray together. Lord, we Wish that your word would just come right out and tell us who to vote for, how to talk to our parent-teacher organizations, how to navigate some of the hoops that we find ourselves tripping over. We wish that it was a lot clearer, Um, but we recognize that even though we can't see the whole thing, you can and that in Christ, you are giving us your wisdom to take the next step. And I pray that your wisdom, that your word, as you've revealed yourself by your, excuse me, by your spirit, God, that that wisdom would instruct us, that it would guide us, that we would uh, recognize that even though we are frustrated with some of the things we see, that you didn't slip off the throne when some human ruler stepped on to his own. That you are sovereign over these things and at work through them. And yet in that, may we recognize that you alone are the king of the universe and that we owe our ultimate undivided allegiance to you. And so uh, that we would honor and respect you and your purposes as ambassadors on this earth. And Lord, let us... Serve faithfully, let us serve diligently, but let us not forget that the victory does not owe to us, but it owes to Christ. And so let us be free to enjoy the good gifts you give us in these days, knowing that, yes, we're at war, but we have a king who's already conquered. God, we pray that you would guide our hearts to be faithful to you and to fruitfully engage with this world. We pray that you would guide the hearts of those who are serving on our behalf around the world, on the mission field, who are facing a lot worse government situations than we face very often. We pray for Kevin and Krista right out, Lord, in Niger. Would you minister to them as they operate in a very closed context in so many ways, and yet you have raised a banner for your gospel? Would you be with them amid the flooding there? And the the restart of the Sahel Academy and all of the logistics that need to work out. Would you protect them from disease, from the flooding and protect the communities there God. We pray Lord for those among us who are in need as well. Uh, Lord you know the condition of every heart. You know hearts here that are weary and wounded that are tired of life and Tired of things not going their way. Would you minister your grace to them? Would you remind them of Christ and his love and his cross? We pray for those who are facing financial problems. Um, God, you know who they are. Would you meet their needs abundantly? Would you give them the wisdom they need uh, as well? We pray for those who are facing health problems, God. Our bodies do not work the way they're supposed to, and we're reminded of that in uh, frustrating ways sometimes, God. But you are the God who made our bodies and who has the power to remake them. We know you're going to do that in the resurrection at the end. We pray that you would give us a foretaste in bringing healing to some people today, Lord. We pray for Marty Lawler, for Rick Mitchell's sister, Lord, and the ongoing battle to figure out what in the world is, is attacking her body, God. Would you give the doctors wisdom? Would you give her peace? Remind her of your presence and your love. We pray for Steve Gerber and Bob French and Rick Brown and others who are facing cancer, God. Would you minister to these people? Lord, we are a people in need of you. We are often scared and lost and frustrated. Thank you that you can not only see exactly where we are, but you can guide us forward, and that you've given us a navigation point in the cross. Keep us close to the cross, Lord. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.